chapter 13 is where we're going to read this morning. We're going to read from the first 15 verses of 1 Samuel 13. Um, while you're turning there, I'll just mention two things, uh, three, actually. This morning I heard we practiced uh, hearing some of the testimonies that are going to be shared next week at the baptism service. It's going to be a great evening. I really would encourage you to come next Sunday night at Grace Baptist Church of Lancaster. It's on Marietta uh, Avenue, 1899, I think is the address. And uh, so please uh, consider coming to that service. The uh, people who are being baptized will be encouraged by your presence. Second thing I want to do is thank uh, the Glimpse uh, Committee for their, uh, the brunch that they had yesterday. I think it was the largest uh, Mother's Day weekend brunch we've ever had. And I did not attend, uh, but I was in the foyer as people were coming in. They were very happy to be here, and it looked wonderful downstairs. And I'm grateful to these uh, women for their leadership in that uh, endeavor. And the third thing that I wanted to mention to you is that we have received permission, approval from Manor Township and the Lancaster County Conservation District to do the work on our building and the paving that uh, we have planned to do. So we got approval for that, which is excellent. We have hopes of doing that paving work uh, this summer. So... um, Remember, the the building expansion fund is still there, and you can give generously to it. That will enable us to do that work uh, this summer. So we're grateful for uh, God's kindness. We're thankful for our government and their kindness toward us, too, uh, during this uh, approval process. Now, more important, let's read God's word. Shall we do that? 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear! So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots. 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore, they went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. 
You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeon Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. So today we're going to begin officially the uh, successes and failures of Saul's reign as king. We already know a lot about this man. Uh, In some ways he's the embodiment of what the people want as a king. Their misguided hopes. He looks like a king. He he's going to be. He looks like he's going to be the king who's going to lead them uh, in war. But he he's the king they want, but not the king they need. So I said we're going to start talking about his successes and failures. Actually, we're going to spend more time talking about his failures. Now, I know that chapter 13 begins his official reign because it starts with that formula in verse 1, the way kings are often introduced in the Bible. The king, his name, was blank however many years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for however many years. That's the formula. Unfortunately, and your Bible might indicate this, something is not right with the oldest Hebrew copies of this passage. The numbers are not right. Literally, the text says that Saul was one year old when he became king, and he reigned in Israel for two years. Something's not right, right? That or we have the story here of Israel's toddler king. If he, and if he became king when he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else in Israel and he was one year old, his mother has the best labor and delivery story ever. Welcome Saul. He weighing in at 230 pounds and 78 inches. Labor was long. Now the NIV has a solution to this. Um, uh, the NIV supplies, well, based on older ver- uh, uh, younger versions of the text and some figuring from the New Testament, it, it supplies the numbers 30 and 42. Uh, I think he was older than 30, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes, but that, that's not bad. The ESV has a, has a pretty good solution. If you have an ESV, it says, Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, then the story continues. That's a good solution, but uh, uh, it's, it's, that's quite a paraphrase. It's not usually the ESV's style. Well, regardless, Saul's on the throne. And what we're going to learn in the next several weeks is that Saul is a man who is controlled by fear. Uh, Over and over and over again, he's going to make decisions that show that he is a cowering sort of person. And seeing that in this text, I hope that, actually that's maybe one of the ways that Saul's life will be most helpful for us because some of you know what it's like to live a life that's controlled by fear. In 1975, Roger Hart, he was a researcher, he went to a small town in Vermont, and he wanted to do a study of how the space in which children feel safe to play. 1975, he picked 86 children in this small town in Vermont, and for uh, several weeks over the summer, he followed them where they went, and he went home and he took a map of the town and he mapped how far they went away from their house. And he created charts and graphs of how far you went based on your age and 
and how far uh, the averages were of people. And, and he was actually surprised at how much freedom uh, these children had. Uh, four- and five-year-olds would travel unsupervised through their neighborhood. And by the time in this town you were about ten, you could go all over town without anybody, uh, without your parents knowing exactly where you were. You, you could travel unsupervised. Well... He went back about 40 years later, so 1975 he started. In 2014, he went back to that same town and he talked to the children of some of the children that he'd followed in 1975. And he asked this this new generation of children to show show him where they could play. And he was really surprised. Um, He said, they just didn't have very far to take me because most of them stayed within their own yards. They never leave their own property. So 1975, they had this huge area that they could wander around and play in which they felt free. And 40 years later, they had this very small, small circle. Um, Hart said, there is no free range outdoors. Even when the kids are older, parents now say, I need to know where you are at all times. And he said, what's odd about it is that this small town in Vermont is not any more dangerous than it was 40 years ago. In fact, statistics, crime statistics, show that, that there is literally, actually, no more crime in this town than there was 40 years ago. So why, why are people, why is there leash on children? Why is it so tight? And he says, fear. The only reason is fear. Fear of the world outside narrows the circle of your lives. That's what fear does, doesn't it? It it constrains and constricts your life. The Bible's particularly attuned to the effects of fear and the control that fear exerts, and the Bible actually pushes back on that. Um, We just read uh, Pastor Scott this morning from 2 Timothy. God did not give you, Timothy, a spirit of fear. Timothy's life was controlled by his timidity, and I, I love how Paul brings in his mother and his grandmother. You didn't learn to follow Jesus like that from your mother. Your grandmother wasn't that afraid. Timothy, don't be constrained by your fear. Or uh, in Ephesians 6.19, Paul says, pray for me that when opportunities to share the gospel come, pray that I might make it known fearlessly as I should because it is, even the Apostle Paul, it can be a frightening thing to talk about the Lord Jesus to people that you don't know how they're going to respond. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his hearers not to be afraid. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough troubles of it as it is. You follow me, you trust in me today, and, and, and God will supply everything that you need. Don't be afraid of tomorrow. Or there's uh, that verse in 1 Peter 3 where Peter told wives that as they seek to follow the leadership of their husbands, don't give way to fear. It is a frightening prospect to stand in the presence of God and before witnesses and pledge for the rest of your life to follow the leadership of that young man standing up there and wearing a rented suit. Some of you should be more afraid of that than you are. Right? Don't give way to fear, Peter says. You're surrounded by people who have the fingerprints of fear on their lives. I I made a list of some of those fears. It's not comprehensive at all, but just think about this with me. Some of you here this morning are afraid of being alone. You're afraid of never getting married, or you're afraid of 
being widowed and being alone. Sitting very close to you is someone who is afraid of getting uh, sick or old or both. They watched their father or they watched their mother fade away through dementia and they're afraid that the same thing is going to happen to them. There's somebody sitting near you who has that fear. Uh, Some of you are afraid of financial ruin. Every month has 30 or 31 days and you have a 22-day check. It's not enough. Someone's in the room who's afraid of never having children, of, of being infertile. Somebody came in this room this morning and is afraid of failing at work, losing your career, losing your income, losing your sense of purpose. Maybe you're afraid this morning of ending up in a relationship like a relationship that you had in, a pa- in the past and, and experiencing that same sort of abuse that you did in that last relationship. Why is it? It's, it's, it's so sad that little girls with angry fathers somehow end up growing, uh, marrying uh, angry husbands. Why is that? Some of you are being uh, afraid of being found out that, that, that people are going to figure out who the real you is. Some of you are afraid of losing control. Some of you are afraid of hurting yourself or hurting someone else. Some of you are afraid of the decisions that your children are making. That's my short list. All these fears. Does fear have a controlling influence in your life? I want to show you over the next few chapters of Samuel as we walk through them how we find help for that in the scriptures, mostly from the negative example of Saul. Uh, this is a narrative book. We're going to walk through it scene by scene. No scene. So, so we're not going to talk about fear in a systematic way. That's not the way narratives work. We're not going to talk about in one scene everything there, there is to say about fear. It's not comprehensive. But there's, there's help here consistently as we move through. Here's what I want to do this morning. First of all, we're going to talk about the development of Saul's fear. Why was he so afraid here in this passage? Then we're going to talk about what fear produces. What did fear do to Saul What does it do to you? We'll talk about those things. And then finally, we're going to talk about the battle with fear, uh, where it begins. At the end of this passage, I think there's a road sign. It doesn't say everything, but it's a direction to go in. It's a place to start when we think about fear. Let's start here with the development of Saul's fear. The Israelites had asked God to give them a king because he want, they wanted a king to lead them into battle. And the first thing that Saul did, we read about this in chapter 11, is he went after the Ammonites on the eastern border. Good for him. He uh, conquered them. Verse 2 tells us, though, uh, well, he's got to handle the, the Philistines on the western border. What's he going to do? Well, he has 3,000 soldiers, verse t- uh, 2 tells us. He divides his army into uh, thirds. He gets two-thirds. And the other third goes to Jonathan. Now, we don't know who Jonathan is yet. He hasn't been introduced. Next week, we'll find out that Jonathan, and you probably know this, is Saul's son. This is why I think he's probably older than 30, because he has a son who's old enough to lead troops into battle. He's probably older than 30. Well, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan is a tragic character in the Bible. He's not tragic for the same reason that Saul is tragic. Saul is tragic because his life is controlled by fear. Jonathan is the exact opposite of his father in many ways. He is, he's courageous, and when he acts in the book, um, when, when Jonathan acts in this book, you're going to think to yourself, there's a guy who could be king, Prince Jonathan, but he, he could do this. 
it would be great. Saul's a coward. Jonathan's courageous. Saul sees David as this massive threat, and, and in some ways he's right about that. Jonathan sees that David is part of God's plan, and towards the end of his life, Jonathan has this goal that, that David can be king instead of him. That seems naive. But Jonathan has this, this dream that David can be king instead of him, and, and Jonathan can be his general, his assistant, under his, his, David's uh, reign. Uh, Jonathan is brave, he's godly, he's loyal, he's submissive to God. He's going to be a great king, except he won't ever be king. Tragic, tragic story. We'll talk about him more in days that are ahead. Jonathan's bravery is on display here in the text. It tells us, verse 3, he leads his men into action by attacking the Philistine outpost at Geba. Geba is very close to Gibeah, where Saul's hometown is. And um, if you're going to start a kingdom and you have a, a city that's going to be your capital, you can't really have a, an enemy outpost close by. It just doesn't work very well. And Jonathan goes on the attack and, and de- defeats the soldiers there, and the Philistines hear about it. Uh-oh. And then all of the Hebrews hear about it. It's unusual. Verse 3 calls them Hebrews. Hebrews uh, is... Uh, a term that sometimes Israel's enemies used uh, derogatorily to, to pick on them, to poke fun at them. That um, Saul calls them Hebrews. Let the Hebrews hear. What's he doing? Well, do you remember when um, uh, 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 Secretary Clinton, when she was running for office and referred to uh, many of Donald Trump's supporters as deplorables? She used that phrase. You know that. You heard it. It was all over, right? And uh, some of Donald Trump's supporters took that phrase to themselves. Yes, we're deplorable. Uh, somebody, I don't know who it was, called, we're adorable deplorables. They owned it. Well, that seems like maybe Saul, what Saul's doing here. Yeah, we're Hebrews. Let's own it. We're Hebrews. That, that could be what's going on here. Or it could be that Saul is calling everybody who lives in Canaan Hebrews, and, and, and he's calling them to join a coalition against the Philistines, and he's going to lead the coalition. That, that's possible too. Well, the people hear the call. They join up with King Saul. But the Philistines muster their troops too. And they field a massive army. 3,000 chariots. 6,000 charioteers. And an army as numerous as sand in the seashore. You look at that and all God's people say, Oh no. What do we do? Saul has poked the bear. Uh, Jonathan has poked the bear, and the bear is awake, and it's coming after us. The Israelites, interesting, in the Bible, the Israelites are supposed to be the ones that are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's what God promised Abraham. He said to Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They're not, but the Philistines are. Oh, You can understand why Saul's afraid, can't you? You see that? Remember what the Philistines did to the last Israelite champion? Remember what they did to Samson? They poked out his eyes and put him in prison. Who do you think they're going to do that to when they attack Israel? Saul? Jonathan, his son? You can understand why he's afraid. In fact, verse 7 tells us that they're all afraid. They're very afraid. They're so afraid that they're uh, running, they're hiding caves and thickets and among rocks and pits and cisterns. And, and those who can't hide, they're running away. They're crossing the Jordan River, getting over on the other side. 
I'm done. I'll see you later. Actually, this should, this should sound a little familiar. Does it sound a little bit like the story of Gideon in the book of Judges? When we first meet Gideon, what's he doing? He's hiding from the Midianites. The Midianites, the, ar- the, Midianites, the army that is nu- as numerous, same phrase, as the sand on the seashore. You can understand why Saul is afraid. Fear is the theme of your life. It's gonna, of his life. It's going to come up again. Think about 1 Samuel 17 when Goliath shows up, another Philistine. Goliath, the champion, comes out, who will fight me? And Saul's the tallest guy in the army. He's got the best armor. Why isn't he going out to fight Goliath? He's afraid. He's just afraid. Now, I want you to think with me about this for a moment, for just a second here. Based on what you know, based on what you know, which is more important, the size of your army or the presence of God? Which is more important for victory in battle? The size of your army or the presence of God? You know the answer, right? You know the answer. In fact, you don't need to know very much about the Bible at all to know the answer. We're in a church reading the Bible, okay? So which do you think is going to be more important? The presence of God. In fact, as you read the Bible, it seems like God loves underdogs. You like underdogs, too. Those are your favorite sports movies. You like the movies about about uh, the, the player who sprains his ankle on the day before the big race or the team that's so terrible, they're not sure if they're playing soccer, hockey, or baseball. You don't, you, they don't know. And you love those movies because they win the championship at the end, right? Well, here it is. This is the original underdog story. God loves to work through underdogs in the Bible. It's what he does all the time. Um, there are a few people in the Bible who are rich and important and influential. Abraham, Daniel, Lydia, Isaiah. But for every powerful person in the Bible that you can name, I could probably name ten people who are poor and outcasts that he uses. Men, who are too, men and women who are too old or too weak or too inarticulate. God seems to love working through outcasts and underdogs. When God wanted the message of the death and resurrection of his son spread throughout the world, he didn't go to Rome and appoint the emperor to do it. He picked 12 poorly educated fishermen to spread that message. They turned the world upside down. Why does God do that? Why does God like underdogs? He gets the glory. We sang it a a minute ago, right? Oh, the mystery of the cross, uh, that God should suffer for the lost so that the fool might shame the wise and all the glory might go to Christ. So I ask you again, which is more important, the size of your army or the presence of God? Gideon learned the answer. He learned the lesson that the presence of God was more important than the size of his army. Will Saul learn that lesson? Is Saul going to figure that out? I suppose more important here, will you learn that lesson? Will you figure that out? So here Saul sits in the face of a massive army, His army is melting behind him, and he's afraid. What does his fear do to him? Three things that we'll talk about here that fear produces in Saul's life. Maybe you've seen evidence of it in your life, too. Okay, first one, fear can produce disobedience. Fear can produce disobedience. I think you should find that surprising that we're going to start there, uh, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes, but let's let's, uh, start with the text here. 
verse 8 of this passage tells us that Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. Now, where did Saul get the idea that he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come? He got that idea all the way back in chapter 10, verse 8. In chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel said to Saul, Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. This seems strange to me. There's a few details missing, I think. There's a a few months between chapter 10 and chapter 13. How did Saul know that that's what Samuel was talking about? Well, I'm not sure, but he did. That's why he was waiting these seven days. Samuel hasn't come, though. He's not coming. He's not coming. He's not coming. So Saul seeing the Philistines before him and his army melting behind him, he took to himself the priestly responsibilities and he started making the sacrifices himself. This is his sin. This is what he did. He offered sacrifices that were not his to offer. The king is not to offer sacrifices. That is the job for the priests and the prophets, most notably the priests, but Samuel could do it as well. And Saul violated his role as God's king. The people wanted a king just like all the other nations, but from the beginning, God had told them that their king would be different. The king was to have next to him a prophet, a prophet who would be God's spokesman. The king was to lead the people according to what God has said. And here's the first example of Saul's great decision-making. He makes a decision without the prophet. He doesn't want to hear God's word. In a rush, out of fear, Saul takes this role to himself. In verse 13... It's very clear when Samuel says to him, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. There it is. This is very clear. Now, there's several different paths that we could take in this text this morning. I want to travel down a few of them, just a couple of them. First, I want to talk about the relationship between disobedience and fear. (coughs) I appreciate this chapter because I hope that it brings some balance to how I sometimes talk about disobedience. This passage has helped me because I think sometimes, uh, often, most of the time, when I talk about disobedience, our rebellion against God, I talk about it in terms of defiance. As if, as if we consciously come before God and we say, no, I'm not going to do what you say. Out of pride or rebellion or just angry defiance, no, God, I'm not going to do this. I think that's true. I think that the Bible describes disobedience that way. But sometimes, sometimes we don't do what God says, not with an upraised fist and a shout, no, but sometimes with a turned face, I can't. I'm afraid. I just can't do what you're asking me to do. Maybe that's why Paul told the Thessalonians when they were dealing with certain people in in 1 Thessalonians 5. Look look what he says. He says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. There are people who need to be, who are with their fists raised to God saying, No, they need to be warned. Look out. But, But there are people who are disheartened. What do you do with them? Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. It is not helpful to warn 
to yell at the disheartened. It's not very wise to encourage the idle and disruptive. You have to get it right. There are so many different things going on in the mind and the heart of those who are struggling. Do you have the patience to stop and listen? Part of the patience, he says, be patient with everyone. Sometimes there are people who need to be sharply rebuked. They're standing before God like this, and they need to be rebuked and say, God is a God of justice, and he will not tolerate rebels. Sometimes there's people, though, who who need to be embraced and say, "I, I know you are frightened. God sometimes asks us to do things that are frightening, but we can trust him and Follow him. Encourage. Encourage the disheartened. Sometimes beneath disobedience, there is just a flourishing fear. Are you wise enough to see that in the minds and hearts of your kids? The minds and hearts of those in your growth group? People that you uh, talk to Sunday mornings after church? When you hear about a need in prayer meeting? Are you, you thinking beneath the surface about what might be there, what fears might be there. So there's a relationship in this text between disobedience and fear. A different path that we could take, though, if we want to think about this passage, is that we could talk about Saul and his rituals, or fear and rituals. This is going to come up several different places as we move through Samuel, but Saul in his life seems to have an unhealthy obsession with the externals of faith, with sacrifices and rituals, Even in this passage, he disobeys a command from God in order to sacrifice, to have a ritual. He's disobeying so he can sacrifice. Now, why is that? Two reasons come to mind. I think the second one is more relevant here than than, uh, the first. But here's a a reason why I think, in some ways, other passages, Saul is, is so obsessed with rituals. I think Saul's procrastinating a little bit. Saul, we have to go to war. Well, first, we've got to sacrifice. Let's find the right sheep. Bring 5,000 or so and let me find a good one, right? Is it possible that Saul's procrastinating? I know churches like this sometimes. We need to act. Yes, we do. But first we should pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. The prayer is good. You should pray. We should pray more. But sometimes, can it be an excuse for inactivity? Hmm. Now, second here, I wonder if Saul's commitment to sacrifice is a form of control. He wants to make sure that God is on his side and that God is going to protect him and provide for him. So he's scrupulous about all the rituals so that that he knows that God will be good to him, be kind to him. Sacrifices in this instance become like filling your pocket with a rabbit's foot and a lucky penny and a four-leaf clover. Saul's packing them all in, so he's ready. Got the sacrifices done. Some of you read the Bible that way, don't you? A verse a day keeps the devil away. You know, if I just, if I just, if I just get my chapter in, then they'll guarantee that God's going to be good to me today. Hmm? Well, that's what fear does. Doesn't fear make us want to control, to do what we can to fix the situation ourselves? I'm afraid of what might happen, happen, so I'm going to fix this myself. I think that's what, what Saul's doing with these rituals. Now, there's a third path that we can take as we think about this passage. It's a little bit of a tangent, but it's this nugget that's buried here in this text. I read the verse a minute ago. Verse 13 says, You have not kept the command 
the Lord your God is giving you. That word command is very important. It's the word in the Bible that is most often used to describe Moses' words. And what we see here developing in the Old Testament is the idea that the words of a prophet are like Moses' words in authority and in divine origin. When the prophet speaks, not just Moses, but when a prophet speaks, any prophet, what, or, or when they write, not just Moses in the Torah, but uh, any writing that a prophet does, their words carry all of the weight that Moses' words do. They're just as inspired and they're just as worthy of our attention and admiration. Okay? Now, that's important. We don't elevate Moses over Samuel. That's probably not our temptation, actually. Our temptation is to carry this through the New Testament where we elevate Jesus over Paul. There's a vein within the evangelical church, I think we've talked about this before, it's most, mostly among uh, progressive believers that Jesus' words, ah, they're in red, right? Jesus' words are more important than Paul's words. They're more authoritative. They're more weighty. Actually, there's a group of believers, they call themselves red-letter Christians because they believe the red letters are more important than the black letters in their Bible. Now, here's, here, here's some of the things that, that they might say. Jesus spoke a lot about the poor. In fact, he spoke more about the poor than Paul did or Peter did. So we should talk more about po- uh, the poor than about Pauline theology. Or, uh, more pointedly, Jesus never said anything directly about homosexuality. It is only the woman-hating, sexually ignorant Paul who spoke about homosexuality And since Jesus didn't address the issue directly, we shouldn't address the issue directly either. That's that's more pointed. But this vocabulary in 1 Samuel 13 tells us that Samuel's words are God's words. And to put it in New Testament terms, Paul's words are Jesus' words. Now, that's a tangent, and we're done with that for now. The key point here is that fear can lead to disobedience. Has this ever happened to you? There are things that you should say and you don't say because you're afraid. Or things that you should do and you don't do because you're afraid. Hmm. Let's move on here. What else does fear produce? Fear produces self-justification. Self-justification. Blaming other people. Saul offers the sacrifices and violations of God's commands. And Samuel, when he confronts him in verse 11, what have you done? Samuel, uh, Saul doesn't say, I'm so sorry. He doesn't say, I repent. Oh, you're right, Samuel. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. Instead, it's everyone else's fault. It's the blame game. It's the army's fault. They were leaving. It's, it, Samuel, it's kind of your fault because you didn't come. It's the Philistines' fault because they were attacking. You know, it's God's fault because we need his favor because we can't go into battle until he blesses us. It's everyone's fault. It's not my fault. Saul's engaging in a practice here that is as old as creation. What happens when God shows up in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit and he says to Adam, what have you done? Adam says, it was her fault. She gave me the fruit. And by the way, God, you know where she came from? You. So you know whose fault this really is? You. Your fault. This is deeply embedded in all of us. I'm a good person, and if I do bad things, it's because of the bad things that have been done to me. My real problem is the people around me. That's the excuse of every raging person, isn't it? I'm sorry that I yelled at you. 
or I'm sorry that I hit you, but you just made me so mad. It's your fault. This is the excuse of every unfaithful spouse. You're not meeting my needs. So I had to look elsewhere. It's not me. It's not me. It's not me. It's somebody else. If you read the Bible very carefully, uh, actually you don't even have to read it too carefully. You just read it. What it says about you and who's to blame for your behavior, if you read that, what it says about you, I think that's one of the most offensive parts of the Bible. Uh, if, you're bothered, if, if you're bothered by what Peter says about wives and husbands and following your husband's leadership, if you're offended by that, you're just way too easily offended because the Bible says a lot more offensive stuff than that. Um, the Bible says that you are incredibly wicked. You are rotten to your core. Your mouth is an open grave of violence. You're not very wise. You can't tell right from wrong. You don't even know how bad off you are. Every aspect of your life is poisoned with a posture of turning away from God, and that posture leads to your everlasting ruin. If you're going to be offended by something, I think you should be offended by that. God hates. He hates what you do. He hates what you do. Remember what Albert Moeller said about human beings. Most of us live with the impression that the problems that I have are caused by people outside of me and the solution is inside of me, that I need to find myself. This is the theme of every Disney cartoon ever made, right? Be true to who you are. Find your real heart and live out of your real self and that will solve all your problems. The Bible actually says that the problems are inside me and I need a solution outside of me to come and fix me, maybe the Lord Jesus. D.A. Carson was recently talking about a friend of his who's a doctor. He works in a Muslim country as a clinic in a poor part of a, a well-known city. Uh, he is there as a um, follower of Jesus. He's providing medical service for people. But he also um, is there to share the gospel. And he's done that faithfully, graciously, quietly, persistently for a number of years. One day he had a woman come into his clinic seeking help. She had a cut on her arm that was poorly bandaged and was becoming infected. It was just a dirty wound. And he said to her, oh, this, this looks okay. Let's, let's just um, clean this wound. And she said, unprovoked, she just came out, she just said, I, I wish there was someone who could clean my dirty heart. Um, he, he didn't prod her to say anything like that. They weren't talking about anything spiritual. They were just talking about her arm. It's, it's rare, though, to find people who are that incredibly honest, isn't it? I wish there was someone who could come and clean my dirty heart. And he, he said to her, I know exactly what you mean. I used to feel like that, too. But then, a long time ago, I met someone who came and cleaned up my heart. Would you like me to tell, him, tell you about him? Huh. This is Mother's Day. Traditionally, along with Easter and Christmas, it's a pretty high attendance day at church. That's what it's supposed to be. Sometimes some of you came to appease mom, right? You say, hey, mom, what do you want for Mother's Day? I just want all my children to come to church with me, right? Oh, man, you're going on a guilt trip. Mom's driving the bus. Okay, so you decide, all right, I'll come. What I have been talking with you about for the past few minutes is both the worst news and the best news that we ever discuss in our building. 
The worst news is about our spiritual condition. It's bad. It's so bad that we deserve nothing from a holy God except his righteous wrath. But the good news is that there is someone who has come to clean, dirty hearts. Jesus died on the cross for us to cleanse us, to wash away our sin. William Cooper said that it's a, like a fountain and it washes away our sin. He, Jesus on the cross removes our guilt. He makes us pure to clean, to stand before God, whole and forgiven. It's a forgiveness that's received as a gift by faith from God. Fear makes people... Uh, believers and non-believers alike succumb to the temptation of self-justify. I'm okay, but, but actually the Bible tells us that Jesus justifies us. We're not forgiven because uh, we're good people, but because of Jesus' sacrificial love. It, friend, if you, make, if you have not turned and trusted Jesus as your Savior, can I invite you to do so today? That might make coming to church with mom worth it. Now, there's one more thing that this fear produces in this passage. We need to move along here. The last one is, uh, the third one is loss. Loss. There's consequences for Saul's decision. There's going to be no Saul dynasty. There's going to be no, Jonathan is not going to become king. Verse 14 says, your kingdom will not endure. Does that seem harsh to you? Like, like saying those awful quick or, or, um, such a small thing. He's just offering a few sacks. I mean, he's worshiping, right? And all of a sudden, Samuel, no, your kingdom is over. Does it seem harsh or quick? Such a little thing. John Wesley spoke about this. Listen to what he said. And indeed, he says, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. That's some good theology right there. There's no little sin because there's no little God to sin against. In general, what to humans seems a small offense to him who knows the heart may appear a heinous crime. Saul, this is your first chance. First chance leading the army. First chance trusting the prophet and going out under his authority. And, and you're so, if you're so sloppy like this at the beginning, what's going to happen as time passes? Has your fear, do you see fear leading to loss in your life? Have you seen how that works? Now there's hope for us in this passage. Fear is a tyrant. And the, the book of Samuel is going to help us recalibrate. Where does that recalibration begin? Samuel hints at it, I think, when he describes the king God will put on the throne to replace Saul. He says, I'm going to find a king who will be a man after God's own heart. It's a wonderful phrase. Man after God's own heart. What does that mean? A person after God's own heart is someone whose life is aligned with God's purposes and plans. This is how we begin to move in the direction of, of freeing ourselves from the control of fear. We align ourselves with God's purposes and plans. Now that heart language is used in chapter 14, verse 7. Jonathan wants to go to war again, and his armor bearer says to him, Go ahead, I am with you heart and soul. I, I will follow you. I'm going to do your plans. I'm with you. Being a man or a woman after God's own heart is saying to God, I am with you. I am in on all of your plans. The power of fear to control your heart and mind diminishes as you increasingly align your heart with God's purposes and plans. When you start to see things from his perspective, when, when what he wants begins to match more closely what we want, we find freedom from fear. 
think Jesus modeled this for us in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. He said, not your will but mine be done. He, he's showing what this alignment looks like. It's a process, this realignment. It's a process we give ourselves over to. We help one another with this. That's why we're reading the Psalms together in worship, so that we can learn from David what it means to, when you're beset by enemies or trouble or worries, what does a, a person who's aligned with God, how do they respond? That's why we're reading the Psalms. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we talk to one another about what God is doing in our lives. Why didn't Saul, 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 why didn't you, when you were struggling like this, do you remember what Hannah did? She went to the, the, tem- the tabernacle and prayed. Why didn't you do that? You didn't need to offer the sacrifice. You didn't need to disobey. She, you know what she found when she went and prayed? She found comfort and help and hope. Why, why didn't Saul do that instead of offering these sacrifices? This alignment process, as it continues here, you start to become less agitated about yourself, less self-protective. Um, Ken Elazingo was written about several years ago in uh, Christianity Today magazine. Forty years ago, when Ken Elazingo was 26 years old, he became a professor at the University of Virginia. Uh, he he uh, was talking to one of his uh, um, faculty members, his co-faculty members, one day, and, and his fa- this member said, another professor said, you need to be really careful about talking about spiritual or religious things on campus because it could really hurt your career. Two days later, Ken Elizinga was walking through the main part of campus and he saw this massive poster of his own face hanging on a wall that said, come here, Ken Elizinga, share his testimony. He had recently agreed to do this with a Christian ministry and there was this big poster with his face. Oh, he was afraid. He actually took the poster down took it home, and he had a long night. He was a new believer, he was a new professor, and he had to think about which was going to win in his life. And he decided that uh, being a follower of Jesus, keeping his faith private, was not an option for faithful discipleship. So the next day he went back and he hung the poster back up. He's been there 40 years at the University of Virginia. He's been the professor of the year multiple times. He's still a speaker in high demand. And he he says, having one master has liberated my life. Pleasing an audience of one makes me less anxious, less sensitive to criticism, and more courageous. Because in doing so, he said, we become more secure and compete less for our honor. He's aligned himself with God's plans and purposes. God grant that we would be a congregation of men and women who are after God's own heart. Now, as the passage ends, we leave Samuel at Gilgal. He's been rebuked by Samuel. Or we leave Saul at Gilgal. He's been rebuked by Samuel. He's still in hiding. He's got 600 men, which is twice as many as Gideon. That's pretty good. What's Saul going to do? Is he going to trust God or not? What's going to happen to him? Tune in next week to find out. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we are uh, thankful to you uh, for this story. It is bleak, and it is discouraging as we see Saul's failure. Well, in some ways it's hopeful because we've walked this path too. Lord, I know that there are men and women who uh, they feel the oppressive power of fear 
in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would do the work in us through your word of realigning us with your purposes and your plans so that we might be set free, that we might not live by the restrictions of the things that we imagine might come and might happen to us. Father, teach us to want to trust you like David trusts you. We want to avoid Saul's mistakes. We pray for your help in doing so. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who forgives us for our faithless, fearful disobedience and and followed you wholeheartedly. Uh, Transform us Lord, that we might be courageous, um, faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.